right, we are going to, we're going to do a little bit of get started on Bible study. Then we're going to take a break and have another prayer time uh, related to some of the things we're looking at tonight. But I want us to be able to pray together right now for these things that are affecting our church and, and family members and friends. Then we'll do a little bit of Bible study and we're going to come back and, and have another prayer time here in, in just a little bit. Let's pray together right now as we start. God, thank you for the gift of those psalms that we were able to sing together earlier. God, thank you for, for Jordan and his heart to serve here and, and what he does and leading our, our youth as they worship together tonight. God, thank you for those that are helping with preschoolers and kids as those kids are learning Bible stories and growing in faith and, and being connected to your word. God, thank you for the people that serve in their areas. I know they're, uh, they desire to serve you and, and see these kids grow in faith. God, we pray for those in our church and those in our community who are hurting, who are going through difficult situations financially, uh, who are maybe facing trauma in their family or, or dealing with cancer and other things. God, we pray that we would be a source of hope and peace because of the gospel. God, that you would put us there to have the conversations at the right time, that, that we would check in on one another, we know how to pray for one another. God, the people that we've, we've mentioned tonight, God, we know that so many of them, even as they're going through chemo, as they're going through these physical rehab, that they're sharing the gospel with the people they interact with there. Uh, they're not wasting these situations, God. And, and God, I pray that they would have courage to share the gospel in hospitals, uh, in all the situations that they face. Father, tonight as we look at uh, some difficult verses and some very weighty topics for our world right now and spend time in prayer, God, I pray that it would not just be about what's going on out there, God, but that we would be paying attention to what's going on in our own hearts and our own lives. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in what's going on around us that, that we forget to take a deep look at our, our soul and what is happening in our heart and our mind. So God, I pray that you would use this time tonight in that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 22, and as you go there, I forgot about one final uh, announcement. Tomorrow at 11.30 is our senior adult uh, potluck. But it's not going to be in the fellowship hall like it normally is. It's going to be over in the choir room of the big building. So if you're a part of that potluck or you're bringing friends, I wanted to make sure we knew that that, that was tomorrow over there. All right, let's look at Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 15. Here's what it says. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what you think, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, so this is not just as a pastor. It's true as a pastor, but it's true in a lot of arenas in life. Few things are more terrifying than somebody coming up to you and saying, so what do you think about X? <laughs> Which by, by that they mean, hey, give me your hot take or give me your opinion on this particular situation. And as a particular, uh, as a pastor, you feel a particular pressure because and they say, and now you're speaking for the Lord, you're speaking for the word of God. Like, tell me what you think about X. And tell me what you think about politics or the political climate that we're in right now or the election or the Iran situation. That's a really terrifying question because inevitably when you're asked that question, you feel that it's loaded. Like, they're not really wanting to know what you think about X. Like, it's coming with a slant, it's coming with an angle, and you really do feel like you're about to be trapped no matter what you say there's just almost no way to get out of that particular question. But the good thing about studying through Scripture a little bit at a time is you get to passages like this where you're able to say, okay, let's see what God's Word has to say about this particular topic. How do we navigate, how do we think about Christianity and politics, especially because of the climate that we live in and, and the way 2020 has started and where 2020 is headed uh, with elections and who knows what else on a world stage. So we want to think tonight about how does God's word inform that topic of Christianity and politics and remembering that when we think about these things, these are not abstract theoretical matters. These things come, come very close to home. And one of the ways they come really close to home for us as Emmaus is one of the people that we support for missions work is a gentleman named Farshid, uh, who many of you have, have met. And he's been here on Sunday, Wednesday night. He's been here even on Sunday through video and, and shared with us. But if you've heard his testimony, he's from Iran. Uh, I don't know the correct way to pronounce it, Iran. I, we're going to go with Iran tonight. But uh, he was from Iran. Uh, and spent time in prison under the regime that is in power, has an incredible story of the Lord rescuing him out of that, of him coming to faith in Christ as a result of that experience. He's now here as become an American citizen, is engaged in ministry, but when we see things on the news happening in Iran, those are his family members, those are his friends. He is an incredible ministry through internet, and, and Facebook, where he's ministering literally all over the world uh, among people, many of whom have an Iranian background. And so sometimes Fashid will come to our staff meeting. And he came to staff meeting on Tuesday morning, and we did to him exactly what we don't want anybody to do to us. We said, could you just talk to us? What does it feel like being an Iranian person with American citizenship and watching what's happening around us? Uh, and he shared a little bit. What does it feel like to have children uh, who, when they go to school, kids are repeating to them things that their parents say at home about Iranian people? What does it feel like to operate in ministry as a person who loves being an American citizen, but who has all kinds of Iranian family members and friends and knows what it looks like to reach out to people in that situation. And he did an incredible job just talking us through what does it look like to do ministry in those situations. And at the end of the day, he said, 
a lot of this, I just don't know what to say. People come up to me, and they want Rashid's take on how do you make sense of what's going on. And his take really is what we just need to do more than anything is figure out how to get the gospel to people in these situations. And that's his heart. That's what, that's what he's seeking to do. Uh, and he really he wants the best for, uh, for everybody involved. So I want you to hear as Emmaus, we literally have vested interests in all these things we see happening uh, on the news and what's happening because we want to see the gospel get to people in these situations. We're thankful for people like Rashid. We have vested interest because we have so many people with a military background uh, in, in our church, and so many of you are connected directly with people in military background. We're not far from, removed from people that are directly involved in the political climate. Uh, setting aside any type of policy questions, Oklahomans are in a unique situation with guys like James Lankford um, at, at work. Jim just spent some time this last week with Steve Russell, who was a longtime House of Representatives and uh, who's on staff at First Southern Dell City. We've got all kinds of people. Uh, Senator Sykes, who's been a part of Emmaus for many years. So just reminding us, when we talk about these things, this is one subject that comes really close to home. Uh, and you don't have to go far in your neighborhood or your workplace for people to start talking about these things. So what we're trying to get at tonight is how do we handle this from the perspective of Matthew 22? Which takes us back to verse 15. What's going on in these verses? What's happening here? So in verse 15, it says that the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. This verse 15 comes on the heels of three parables that Jesus has told that have not painted the Pharisees and the religious leaders in a, in a very good situation, where they claim to be religious leaders, but Jesus has told three parables that put them on the outside rather than the inside of God's people. They don't like it, and so they're seeking to trap him. That's what they're trying to do, and they're going to put three questions. The Pharisees will put two questions, and the Sadducees will put one question in front of Jesus and try to trip him up. What they're doing is remember that in this culture, it is a high honor culture. The worst thing imaginable would be to be shamed or dishonored in front of a public audience. So think about middle school on steroids. <laughs> like the worst thing imaginable would be to be embarrassed in front of other people. Like that, it, it's all over. If a middle schooler is embarrassed in front of other people, you might as well just shut down high school. Like you're just not going to continue in life. In a high honor culture, people are always battling for who has the upper hand, who has the honor, who has the power in the situation. And so they're trying to embarrass Jesus is what they're trying to do. They're trying to shame him. And by shaming him, cut out any reputation he has as a religious teacher is, is what's happening here. Verse 16. So what do they do in verse 16? They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances." That's a little tough to know what to do with the Herodians coming alongside the Pharisees. Uh, there's not a lot of great historical data that we can go to on, on who the Herodians are, but just based on their name, they're, they're obviously associated with Herod, uh, who had been Herod the Great and then passed on to his children to be uh, 
puppet rulers for the Roman government, essentially, in the Holy Land. And so the Herod family had, had power there, but they were more connected with the Romans. They wanted the political power. They were tied into the political power. The Pharisees, they wanted faithfulness to the word of God, to the law, but they didn't have the political power. So here's what seems to be happening. Common enemies make strange bedfellows. It seems to be what is going on here. The Pharisees and the Herodians neither like Jesus. And so the Pharisees are going to trap Jesus with a question. They bring along the Herodians so that no matter how Jesus answers this question, he's going to look bad. He's either going to offend the Pharisees or he's going to offend the Herodians. So they're literally trying to put him between a rock and a hard place. (laughs) You go this way, you're going to... uh, make this group angry, you go this way, you're going to make this group angry. They're setting him up in this way. And then in verse 16 there in the middle, they give the sappiest of sappy introductions <laughs> to this situation. I think Jesus was probably too holy to roll his eyes, but if not, he is rolling his eyes really badly here. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances just get to the question. You're here to trap me. Like, we don't need the, uh, we don't need the sappy introduction here. But what they do seem to be doing in verse 16, what they do seem to be doing is they're at the end where it says, you, don't, you do not care about anyone's opinion, and you are not swayed by appearances. They're trying, I think, to frame him as a revolutionary. So you don't care about Caesar. You don't care about Roman power. You're, you're not swayed by those people, so surely you're not going to have anything to do with that type of political power. They seem to be putting him in a situation where he's going to be per- portrayed as a revolutionary, as, as a troublemaker. Verse 17, so tell us then what you think. There's the phrase. What do you think, Jesus? What do you think about this? Tell us what you think. Is it lawful, and not lawful before Rome, but lawful as the people of God? Uh, Rome didn't care what you thought about their laws. You were going to obey it. They're asking the question, is it appropriate for a Jewish person? Is it appropriate for the people of God? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay, there's a neat backstory that explains what's going on here. When you see tax here, this is not the temple tax that was mentioned back in, in Matthew 17. That was related to the temple. That was related to religious dealings. This is a Roman tax, and the word here even is related to our word census. So we're in a census year. We know about a registration being done. There's a registration the people have done so that a tax could be imposed on the people by the Roman government. This tax had really started to take off after the time that Herod the Great had died and his three sons began to take power of different areas that we would call the Holy Land. Um, His son that got control of the southern part of the Holy Land where Jerusalem was, and that area, his son Archelaus, he struggled ruling. He just, he did a very, very poor job, so poorly that the Romans had to come in and take back direct control of this area and put their own people on the ground, and in the process, they imposed this tax. Now, here's the key. In doing this, there was a Pharisee named Judas who sparked a revolution, a revolt against Rome because this particular tax was put in place. So remember, the Pharisees have come to Jesus with this question. Just a few years before, 
25, something like that, uh, give or take, 25 years before, one of the Pharisees had sparked a revolt against the Romans that, let's just, to be clear, did not go well. I mean, they got crushed uh, in the Roman response to this, to this revolution. Judas was from the north. He was from Galilee. So what do people see when they see Jesus coming into town? Here comes another Galilean anti-government revolutionist who's going to come here and cause trouble. And they're, they're going to set him up and they're going to frame him to be just another Judas, the Galilean, who came in and, and caused a revolt. So they say here, 17, tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're, they're setting him up. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, either because of supernatural awareness, which is very much a possibility, or it's probably a situation Jesus, like, anybody could have picked up what's going on here. Like, yes, I do have supernatural awareness, but I didn't need to use it in this situation. It's just pretty obvious what, what's happening. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin that is used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now, the denarius was a coin that would have had the emperor's image on one side and would have referred to the emperor as the son of God or son of a God, son of Augustus. And on the back of the coin would have referred to the emperor as a high priest. Now, you want to provoke the Jewish people. You put an inscription of a godlike figure on a coin because now we're disobeying the Ten Commandments and you call that figure a high priest and a son of God. I mean, this was, a, this was a radically shameful thing for the Jewish people, so much so that oftentimes they were given their own coins that they could use in different dealings, but in this particular tax, they had to use the denarius. Now, the Jewish people hated this particular coin because of what it represented for Roman power. Here's the irony going on here. There seems to be a little bit of humor behind what Jesus is, is doing in this situation. They're in the temple area. While this uh, teaching controversy is going on, and Jesus knows they're going to set him up over this tax. He also knows they're really not supposed to have these coins with them in the temple area. Because remember, they're so holy, they hate these coins. This is a little bit like, I'm trying to think of how to explain this. It seems like a situation where somebody says, hey, does anybody have a lighter? And then you see like 40 lighters come out. You're like, oh, wait. Or uh, does anybody have a knife on them in your area where you're not supposed to have a knife? And then all these knives come out. And it, it's almost like the Jewish people, he's calling them hypocrites. He's saying, you say you're so holy. And then he asked for a denarius. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, I got one right here. Oh, you're not, wait, we weren't supposed to have these with us. And they start to put it back in their, in their pocket. It, he's setting them up, showing them to be hypocritical in the way that they think about this coin. But the coin comes out. It has the Caesar's image on there, and you go down to verse 20. Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Now, verse 20, some of your translations, um, instead of whose likeness and inscription is this, does anybody's translation say whose image is this? What, what translations are those that say image? King James? New King James? What does New American say? Portrait. Okay. 
Uh, well, good for the King James there. It seems to be possibly a play on the idea of image. And you think about an image being put on a coin, uh, a divine image being put on a coin, there's a possibility that Jesus is invoking this idea of us as people being created in the image of God. So are you going to give yourself to this false God image, so to speak, on this coin, or are you going to live as people made in the image of God? Commentators kind of disagree on there, but there seems to be a pretty intentional wordplay that's going on here where Jesus is talking about this idea of whose image is this? Whose image are you going to give yourself to? But then he turns around in verse 21. They reply to his question, whose image is on there? They said Caesar's, of course. Then he said to them, one of the more famous lines in the New Testament, he says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And before we talk about that, we'll just pick up 22 because you get the conclusion in 22. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Uh, so what he says obviously catches them so off guard. They think they have him trapped and he finds a way out through this response in 21. So the response in 21, what is it? It's, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, do any of the translations do something other than render? So, therefore, render to Caesar's, give, give back. What translation is give back? NIV? See, we had a little translation discussion uh, before service tonight. We were just kind of talking about different translations. So, what I've done tonight, I want you to hear clearly, okay? I've read from the ESV, I've complimented the King James, and now we're going to compliment the NIV. So don't think that we're not just like all over the this. That should tell you everything you need to know about translation controversies in, in, in Bible life. We are going to read the ESV, and we're going to compliment the King James and the NIV. So we are equal opportunity offenders on that. But give back in the NIV is a really good way of, of expressing this, this idea of render. Jesus is not saying uh, make sure I say this clearly. In other words, he's saying, when you return this to Caesar, remember what Rome's provided for you. Peace, roads, sure it's not the best life, but you know, they, they're saying, you're giving back. It's you're returning what is due, is the word that's being, being used there. You're returning what's due. You're not being forced to give more than is appropriate. Uh, and so this is, a, this is an obligation you should be able to fulfill. And what catches the people off so badly is that for many of the Pharisees and many of the Jewish people, in their minds, there was no possible world in which they could imagine being the people of God and yet it being considered right to respond in an obedient way to the government. They, they couldn't imagine a world in which that was right. And Jesus says, actually, that's exactly what I'm telling you to do. In a world in which God has sovereignty over all governments, it is right that you would give what is due back to the government because of the services that are provided to you. And if that's true for an imperial government, how much more so would that be true for a, a democratic republic or a government in which things are not nearly as bad as it would have been under the Roman Empire? So Jesus says you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, you give back, you give what is due, and you give to God's what is God's. Now, the interesting thing there 
is he seems to be going back to that parable of the tenants um, that was back in chapter 21. The, um, I'm going to find my verse here. So back in chapter 21, starting in verse 33, you had this parable about the master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to tenants, went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get back his fruit, to get what was due him. This is the same language that's, same word, same language that's being used in 22. So you give back to Caesar, what is due Caesar, and you give back to God the fruit that is due the Lord. He has given this, how do I respond to him? By living a fruitful, righteous life of obedience and praise before him. All things are due him, and so I give back to him the life that he has given to me. This is what Jesus is setting up, us up for here. Now, here's the question. Does this answer all of the intricacies of church-state relations? No, it, there's plenty of questions that, that remain. But what Jesus gives us here is a foundation for how we understand our obligations of those who live under a government. There are plenty of other passages that help us deal with this. One is Romans 13. Let's turn over to Romans 13. You can see another Another complimentary passage that talks about how do we live as the people of God. I think Romans 13 is, after you get the foundation of Matthew 22, Romans 13 is the next best place to go to think through this question of how do we live as Christians in, in a political climate. So you get to Romans chapter 13, and here's what you get starting in in verse 1. And remember, by the time you go f uh, from Jesus' time to the time that Roman, Rome, Romans was written, things have not gotten better <laughs> in the Roman government. In fact, they're, they're spiraling out of control somewhat. And so, 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We're probably not going to read it tonight just because of trying to stay on track with, with time. But when you read Romans 13, 1, in the background of that, I want you to make a connection with Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is one of the most famous passages you get in the Old Testament, just about the sovereignty of God over every human government, over every human king, every human ruler. Uh, and so when you hear 13, 1, that's kind of a New Testament picture that reflects Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Back to Romans 13, looking at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. So let's make sure we understand Romans 13 too. For whoever drives faster than the speed limit resists what God has appointed. That'll make you feel guilty, won't it? Like, that'll, make, that'll make you feel good. Uh, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, 
be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger in, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Amazing language there. Uh, amazing language that's used in that situation because the Roman authorities were not good Christian people. That's not what's being portrayed here. But they are, our, uh, our connection a little bit is Isaiah 45 where Cyrus and God's plan is called the Lord's anointed. Uh, now, Cyrus in that situation is not a God-fearing ruler, but he's spoken of as God's anointed, that God is using even imperfect, unholy human rulers to do his work in the world. And so, for because of this, verse 6, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The other place in the New Testament you get a pretty strong government passage, how do we relate to this, is in 1 Peter. So this will be our last passage we'll look at, and then we're going to kind of draw some principles from this. But if you go over toward the end of your New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, I say it's the only other passage that deals with uh, relation to government. You can certainly find others that fit into there. And you can even make a really strong case that the book of Revelation is in some way a subversive book that's written about how do you live under uh, a dangerous empire like the Roman Empire. So the book of Revelation does fit. Uh, we're not going to take that angle tonight. We're going to focus right here. 1 Peter chapter 2, let's look at uh, verse 13 in, in 1 Peter 2. So be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So another passage that kind of lives in that same world is Matthew 22 and, and Romans 13. Now keeping those things in mind, go back to your note sheet, and we want to kind of draw some principles. How in 2020 do you take Matthew 22... Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, how does that impact what you watch, what you talk about at your workplace, with your family, with your friends, uh, those awkward inter-family political debates that go on? Uh, how, how do you handle those? How do we think through these things? Number one, God is sovereign over every human government. Uh, God does not panic. God is not worried. Uh, God's not trying to fix an election. It doesn't work that way. God is sovereign over every human government. Um, number two, God uses unholy governments to do his work. Again, this is the example of the Roman Empire. This is the example of Cyrus in Isaiah 45. This is an example even to today that, that you see happening, that God uses unholy governments to do his work. 
Number C, number C, that doesn't work very well, but C. Um, every human government is temporary, and every human government is imperfect, but some are definitely better than others. <laughs> so let's just be honest. You can look at every government ever established, ever will be established, you can say, number one, it's temporary. Number two, it's imperfect. But it is okay to judge some as being better than others. Not every policy is equally good just because it's established as a government policy. Now, the Lord will use that, redeem that, be in control of that, but there is a better way to do government than other ways to do government. We can, we can say that together. D, every political theory is challenged by the gospel. You cannot take one human political theory and say that is the Christian political party or that is the Christian political theory. Every person finds themselves subjected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone comes broken, everyone comes sinful, everyone comes imperfect. And so to take, this is the danger of saying this one political party or this one political idea, that's the Christian way to do it. We get ourselves in a bad situation quickly in, in those type of mentalities. Now, with that being said, don't miss E on here. Patriotism is greater than nationalism. Patriotism is a great gift. Nationalism is a dangerous God. Patriotism is saying Thank God for the country in which we live. The good that it provides, the good that it does both internationally and here, the freedom that it provides, it is a good and right and even holy thing to say, God, thank you for that. We celebrate that. We express patriotism when we vote, when we contact Congress people, when you serve in the military, when you run for political office, when you just say, this is a good country, this is a good gift, we're able to accept it. The danger is when it becomes what we might call nationalism, when we begin to equate our country with the kingdom of God, or we begin to worship our country with an allegiance that is only due to God, or we begin to ask a government to do gospel work that only the church has ultimately been called to do in advancing the gospel. That's when we start to get into dangerous territory. And the line between patriotism and nationalism can get blurred very quickly. And that's where you have to be just so careful in how, in how we handle things. Sure, there's ways you can disagree with people about the best way to carry this out. But hear me saying, I, I never want to speak about government. Uh, sometimes I can come across as too unpolitical, so I want to be aware of that. Hear me saying that patriotism is, is a great gift. I'm just scared because I see nationalism creeping in in so many different places. And, and we've got to be aware of that. F, be careful, and that's probably not even strong enough language. We don't compare Old Testament Israel with modern USA. This gets us in trouble reading the Bible, and, and a lot of times that we read a passage about Old Testament Israel, and then we take modern USA and we equate the two. They're not analogous that way in, in Scripture, and we begin to impose certain things on the U.S. government and what we should do as a country when that was God's work among the people of Israel in the time of the Old Covenant, and that's not the world in which we live right now. If you ever want to get to the heart of the generational political divide in our country, it was put to me this like this one time, and it made a lot of sense, and I think it might make sense to you. In the church especially, 
The generational political divide in our country is an older generation tends to see the U.S. as Israel, and a younger generation tends to see the U.S. as Babylon. If you think about the way Scripture works, you think about how things that are set up, and you think about why do my grandkids not see politics the way I see politics, or why do grandkids not see military the way I see military, it's because a shift has happened in which an older generation tended to equate the U.S. with Israel, a younger generation tends to equate the U.S. with Babylon. Now, neither one of those is perfectly accurate or true, but I hope that helps you understand why sometimes maybe you don't see eye to eye with a different generation on, on how we understand the U.S. and how we understand politics. Um, G, being critical isn't the same as being disloyal. <laughs> Thank God we live in a country where it's good and right and even healthy to be critical. That's, that's one of the things that, that we're, we're built on and we need to, we, we want to maintain. I, or H, need for consistency and evaluation and critique. This just means uh, we tend to give our preferred political party and, and leaders and policies a pass on things that we would never give to a pass on the other side. Uh, consistency and, and fair evaluation is, is hard to come by because we have rose-colored glasses toward the people we like and everyone else is an enemy, damned to hell, never to have anything good. And, you know, we get caught in this really intense uh, good versus bad and when things are way more complicated than that. So we, we want to be, be honest. This, honestly, th- honestly, this comes back to being honest. That was not the best. But what this comes back to is, is just integrity as Christians, truth-telling, honest evaluation, humility that says, yeah, the people we prefer as political leaders, they've got some real challenges that we would never have let pass if our political opponents had done those type of things. It's, it's being fair, it's being truthful, it's having integrity. I, politics should make us uncomfortable because of our already not yet view of the world. Jesus is king of all kings. The kingdom of God has come and is at work. We've just met, not yet seen all that that's going to be. The new creation has not been established. Everything is not perfect in the world in which we live. We should feel uncomfortable. If we feel too comfortable talking about and participating in politics, it might betray that we love the things of the world more than we really would want to admit, that we're putting all of our chips here when that's not what we've been called to live for. So we're always guarding ourselves uh, with that. A couple of thoughts for just questions for application tonight as you go home. A, is my ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God? Am I ready to render to God what is God's do? Do I seek first the kingdom of God? Is, is that true in my heart? B, how do I understand my relationship to Christians in another country compared with my relationship to non-Christians and my preferred political party? Like, what do you mean by that? Well, it's easy to paint everybody out there as the enemy, but the people in my party are all the good people. Theologically, not just theologically, but, but, but just based on what it means to be in Christ, we have a tighter relationship with a brother or sister in Christ who is in another country, maybe under a very different political uh, regime or government than we would, our relationship with them is tighter than any non-Christian who might support our particular political views or policies. In Christ, we are tied as brothers and sisters. And I think that's what Farshid is so good at helping us see is 
he doesn't love the Iranian regime any more than anybody else does, but, but he does recognize that he has brothers and sisters in Christ that he's led to faith in Christ and that are living in that situation. And so it reminds us of, of where do our true loyalties lie when it comes to, to our relationships? See, how much anxiety and time do I devote to earthly politics compared to God's kingdom? If you turn over to the back, kind of continuing on from CD, just a caution about the internet and our tendency to overreact, overreact. We need limits uh, on internet consumption. We need multiple perspectives. If you feel yourself just anxious all the time, jittery, make sure you're not ingesting too much internet junk or, or, or too many talk shows. And sometimes it's not even the content, sometimes it's the tone. If, if you listen to something of a particular tone or, or manner of speaking, it can really mess with your attitude. It can mess with your mental framework. You can find yourself anxious and combative in a way that you think, where did that come from? Well, it probably has to do with what's coming into my ears, what, what I'm thinking about, what I'm ingesting. I had to, I'm not telling you to do this, I had to step back from social media for a while because I, I just found myself, why am I feeling anxious? Why am I feeling? Well, it's probably because of what I'm constantly taking in. Like, it, it's just not good for the soul after, after a while. And so we want to be aware of that. And just as a reminder, not, not provoking or, or trying to pin anybody down, but some people will take kind of the Facebook Fox News and put it against Twitter, CNN. Just a reminder, neither of those is the Word of God. <laughs> neither of those is the approved ministry of Jesus or media of Jesus. Uh, the, uh, among pastors, sometimes there's this feeling of, hey, pastor, what's the, what's the biggest challenges you face in discipleship in the church? Uh, well, number one's Facebook, and number two is Fox News. Like, if, we're t- if we can battle back against those, like, we're probably going to make some progress because we, we don't realize how much media like that can begin to shape our manner of thinking, our manner of reading scripture, what we worship, what we give our time and attention to. I like this last little quote here from, from Dale Bruner. He says, Jesus' great statement from Matthew 22 does not forever settle the question of Christians' relation to the state because every day we must ask ourselves afresh if we are giving too little or too much of our energies to the political. Jesus' Caesar statement is a slide rule asking us perpetually, or so every day, to readjust our use of time and priorities. I want us to give our last two or three minutes here just to a time of prayer uh, about what we're facing as a nation, what we're facing in our world, and, and praying for Rashid and, and his family as well. So let's pray together, Emmaus, uh, as, we, as we wrap up. Father, we know there's so many other questions that we can explore, uh, think about with Christianity and politics, but God, I pray that tonight our hearts would have a foundation in your word. Our hope would be in the gospel. One of the callings of Christian people in the world is simply to be people of peace and hope. God, we know this this year there's going to be a lot of anxiety in our country. Uh, There's going to be a lot of anxiety online. And one of our callings is, is just to be a source of peace and stability and hope and joy. And in that, pointing people to Christ, uh, as the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. and Father, we pray for our servicemen and women. Uh, 
the American military. God, so many people have direct family or very close connections with military family. And God, we pray for them. We thank you for the incredible revivals that are happening right now on army bases around the country and the stories that we're hearing of women and men coming to faith in the hundreds uh, through, through chaplain work. God, we pray for our lawmakers, local, state, national, for our president, for the election that's to come this year. God, we know the hostility around the world is, is so intense, but God, let us not forget that by what we can tell, the fastest growing church movement in the whole world is in Iran right now. God, let us not lose sight of how incredible that is. And God, thank you for the relationship you've given us with Farshid. God, we pray for him and his wife and his kids. God, thank you for his heart, for the gospel. And we pray that in the days ahead that you would continue to shape our hearts and minds to be more and more like Christ. Again, that you would use us in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for being here tonight. I hope you make it to the potluck tomorrow, 1130. Have a great day. Great night. <laughs>